Black-eyed children haunt a child for reasons that seem treacherous and nefarious. Cryptids in the Australian outback that brings on a certain sound of dread to those they hunt. And a man knocks on the door of a family whose males that reach the age of 40. Well, trust me, it's not what you'd expect. Listeners, I bring you three no-sleep tales for your lovely ears. In order of telling, if you ever see black-eyed children, please don't make the same mistake that I did by Lighthouse Horror. We saw creatures in the Australian outback, pictures included by Worcester Street. And lastly, a man knocked on my door at midnight. He gave me a horrible choice by Richard Saxon. A big thank you to every author who provided me their story. And now it's pouring down here in Australia, so I'm going to hop to thanking my very special white tea warlords. The indomitable Matthew J. Bauer, the marvellous Maya, and divided by zero, the legend, the hero. Thank you so much for being my white tea warlords. I have a limited number of spaces available for this level of support, and I'm so lucky to have three marvellous listeners filling those roles. And there isn't an episode that I create when I'm not thinking of you lot. Thank you so, so much. And my old grain forces, Chad Warren, Just Heather, Lee Bauer, Lorraine Crisanto, Mace Joe, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffaelli, and Michelangelo Yacone. Every day, you remind me why I love to do what I do on this podcast. Thank you so much for your support. Now, folks, turn off the lights, turn up the sound. And will you let the black-eyed kids in? Do you hear that sound? And the option posed by the man who knocks at your door at night? Which one would you take? Enjoy. In October of last year, I saw the black-eyed children for the first time. They floated just outside the open window. Their skin a pale white, and their eyes as dark and void as the deepest hole you can imagine. I had become lost in those eyes. Have you ever had a nightmare you can't remember? I woke abruptly, covered in sweat, and my heart beating faster than it ever had before. Yet I couldn't recall the goings-on of my mind that had shaken me so thoroughly. Sitting up at the edge of my bed, I stared over at my eight-year-old son. Ben. Monsters aren't real. There's nothing to be afraid of, I had said, night after night with little result. But that wasn't true, was it? There was plenty to be afraid of. Since his mother had died, each night had progressed the same. I would tuck him in. Ben would promise that he would stay in his own room tonight, and I would kiss him on the forehead. I would then walk tiredly to my own bedroom, close the door quietly, take more than my fair share of melatonin, and drift off to sleep. Upon awakening, I would almost certainly find my son 
gently nestled against my shoulder. Thinking it to be the natural result of losing his mother, I hadn't thought much of it. That was until the nightmare started, and the children began their nightly visit. The first night I saw them, I was sure it had been a dream. The bed was nearly pressed up against the window, and my son was directly below it. The two children reached their arms through the opening, and were only inches away from grabbing my son. Somehow, holding back a scream, I reached out to push the cold arms away. And then, I shut the window and locked it with a loud click. Dad? Ben had said, having perhaps awoken from his own nightmare. Before he could see the two children, I quickly closed the curtains and pressed my back up against the window. What are you doing, Dad? He continued. Nothing. Go back to bed. I said quietly, having no idea what to say or do. This is what I did do. Each night, I would lock the windows securely and shut the blinds so tightly that it was impossible to see anything. I made it a rule in our house that each night, every window must be locked securely and the blinds shut. I think I made up some excuse about burglars choosing houses where they could see inside. A few nights later, I peeked through the blinds and saw the two children, pale as death, back to where they had been that first night. I became lost in the depth of their eyes, and I watched as they looked from me to my son. No, you can't have him, I whispered angrily, snapping back into reality and pushing the blinds closed. As time continued, Ben's nightmares increased. Dad, sometimes at night I see things, Ben said, fear washing over his face. I interrupted quickly. I know what you see, Ben, and don't worry. They can't get to you. He began to cry as he looked up at me. You promise? Tears flowed down my cheeks then, as well, as I hugged him close. I promise. Embracing him tightly, I looked over his shoulder and towards the tightly shut window. I couldn't see the dead children, but I still knew they were out there. Perhaps there were even more than the night before. Months went by and Ben eventually got to the point where he wanted to try sleeping in his own room again. I don't want to be afraid anymore, Dad. He paused and looked up at me. They can't get me, right? I was lost for words, trying to hide the fact that I was indeed thinking it over. I had not only boarded off my son's bedroom windows, but had sealed it as well. Nothing could get through, I was sure of it, and it wasn't right to have my son always living in fear. Okay, Ben. Shortly after, I set up a live camera in the corner of his room, facing his bed, and where the window had been. I wanted my son to find courage and face his fears, but I didn't want to take any chances either. I tested the camera feed carefully, and then went to tuck him in. Kissing him on the forehead, my son hugged me close. Don't worry, Dad. I'm not afraid anymore, he said. I was beyond proud of my son. Not only had he lost his mother, he had been given real monsters to contend with, and he had shown courage and determination in the face of it all. I'm so proud of you, I whispered. That night, I didn't sleep at all, only watching the camera feed to my son's room. I had placed the lens facing his bed and the closed-off window, just in case. Nothing happened for hours, until I did something so simple, something I would regret for the rest of my life. I went to the kitchen for a glass of water. 
I was gone no more than twenty seconds when I heard him. Dad! Ben screamed, making me drop the glass. I watched as it shattered onto the kitchen floor. Ben? Ben? I screamed, rushing to his bedroom. Ben, Ben, hang hang on. on. I shouted again, now just outside his room. When I burst through the door, I felt my heart stop. My son's bed was empty, and he was gone. Ben, Ben, I screamed, searching frantically for him. The window was still boarded off and sealed, yet my son was gone nonetheless. The police never found him, and I could tell from how the detective in charge eyed me over that I was their main suspect. It wasn't until two weeks later that I found Ben's drawings from the previous months. There were no dead children outside the window, and no monsters with black eyes. There was something else entirely. Please, if you ever see the black-eyed children outside your window, please, God, don't make the same mistake that I did. They aren't monsters. I think they were trying to warn us. As I sit today and stare out the window, I tell myself that maybe, just maybe, I'll find my son again one day. I have to think that. It's the only thing that keeps me alive. I glance down at my son's notebook from months earlier. One page stands out among the rest. There is a drawing of his room. The window boarded off and my son sleeping peacefully. The closet door is cracked open and a large clawed hand can be seen reaching towards his bed. October 2nd, 2019. I can't start thinking about what happened. Does anyone here have experience with these things? My older brother Jake has always been fascinated by cryptids. It started with the classics like Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster, but soon his passing interest turned into a full-time hobby. If there was a story about a mythological creature anywhere in the world, Jake knew it. I can't blame him. Our parents passed away a few years back, leaving us with a bunch of money and nothing to do with it. Whenever he talked to me, excited about a new creature sighting, I always just let him go on. Earlier last week, he showed me a new news article. A woman had been attacked near an abandoned town in the Australian outback. Whatever had attacked her left long straight cuts across her back as she escaped. Jake was pretty sure he knew what had caused it. He opened one of his books and slid it over to me, pointing to a passage. It read, Malingi. In Australian Aboriginal mythology, Malingi is a spirit of the night who, during his travels in the dark, seeks to find his way home. Malingi's stone knees knock together as he walks. Both people and beasts fear him, for he kills tribesmen with his stone axe at the slightest provocation. Other animals, such as the eagle hawk, may be killed with the stone knives attached to his elbows. His face is said to be an awful sight, with burning eyes that make him appear to be a devil. The Encyclopedia of World Mythology and Legend, 3rd edition. So Ryan, you feel like heading to Australia? He asked excitedly. It wasn't the first time he'd suggest a trip to look for a creature. So I agreed. Jake chased his creatures and I got to travel. I figured it was a win-win. 
We arrived in Australia, got a rental car, and set off into the outback. As we drove further into the interior, the road turned to dirt, and I started getting worried. Our rental car looked new, but we were already far from cell reception. It would be very bad news if we broke down. I took a picture of the road which you can see here. See the notes. After another few hours, we arrived at the ghost town. Decrepit wooden buildings littered the landscape, most clustered together as if bracing themselves for a storm. I rubbed my dry fingers together, thinking that there probably hadn't been a real rainstorm here for years. Jake pulled out his gear, a long-ranged listening sonar dish and headphones. He fiddled with the wires, muttering to himself. All the stories say you can hear their stone knees clack together when they walk. If we can catch that sound. With his sonar dish assembled and headphones in place, we began to walk through the town. We didn't hear anything for the next hour and a half. Jake had almost given up when his face lit up. Come on! He shouted, taking off between two abandoned houses. I chased after him, my mind more on rusted nails than angry aboriginal spirits. But then, I heard it too. A soft clacking sound. I turned a corner to see Jake staring up at a piece of metal swaying from a rope in the wind. It swung and hit the side of a pole, making a distinctive clack sound. Let's get out of here, he said, disappointment coloring his tone. He walked back to the car. Before I got in, I noticed several long, thin scratches crisscrossing the side panel. My mind flashed to the car insurance Jake had said no to. Did we drive too close to some bushes on the way out here? Ryan, Jake said, his voice low. Yeah, I said, trying to contain my annoyance. It was then that I noticed the clacking. It was louder and closer this time. I stood up, turned back towards the town, and saw two dozen pairs of flaming eyes staring out at us from between the houses. Clack, clack. Clack, 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 clack. The clacking resumed, coming from each pair of eyes. They were getting closer. We jumped into the car and Jake turned the engine over. I shot a look out of the windshield. I saw a dozen glowing eyes just a few feet away. Jake slammed the car into reverse, backing down the road, turning around and driving away. I can't think of any other explanation for what we saw. I don't think they wanted us near that town. Today marks my 40th birthday on this earth, and rather than contemplating how to deal with a typical midlife crisis, I'm deciding whether or not my time here has ended. It's sort of a family curse. For as long back as my family tree stretches, the men of the family never make it past the age of 40. It even goes as far as saying each of them have died exactly on their birthday. At least, that was the case for my father. I was in the middle of college when I got the call. They'd found the athlete of a man lying dead on the front porch from an apparent heart attack. On his 40th birthday, my uncle suffered the same fate a couple of years later, as did my brother, who died about five years ago. Based on the evidence, I'd say there's some merit to the supposed curse. But as with every rule, there is an exception. In this case, it's my granddad. Even as a kid, I always looked up to him, 
not only vertically, but as a role model. In fact, our birthdays were only a few days apart, so we usually saw each other around that time. He had this aura surrounding him, like an invisible shield that prevented anything malicious from getting too close. Everything he did, he did with purpose and with an undying smile on his face. Only once did he ever break his perfect facade at my father's funeral. But even then, he seemed more disappointed than he did sad. Year Zero. That's what he called his 40th birthday. For him, it marked the true beginning of his life, creating jokes about his age, claiming he just turned five years on his 40th birthday and so on. Once I reached adulthood, his demeanor changed ever so slightly as he approached me for what he called some manly advice. He sat me down, handed me my first official beer, and started talking. After what happened to your father last year, I'm sure you've been thinking a lot about this so-called family curse. It's not false that all men seem to simply die on their 40th birthday, but it's wrong to call it a curse. In fact, it's more of a blessing in disguise. He took a deep breath before continuing. It's going to sound a bit crazy, but I'll tell you anyway. On your birthday, once you turn 40, a man will come knocking on your door at precisely midnight. Despite the odd hour, you'll feel compelled to let him in. Don't worry, he won't come to harm you. He just wants to talk, and once he has said what he wants to say, he'll offer you a choice. What choice? What's he going to tell me? I asked, confused as to how words could have caused all these deaths. That I can't tell you. It's something you have to find out for yourself. All I can do is warn you, and tell you to live your life to the absolute fullest for as long as you can. He never brought it up again, and though it was always a thought that lingered in the back of my mind, I couldn't bring myself to actually believe it. But I did as he said, and tried to enjoy each aspect of life, believing that once I turned 40, I'd surely perish like the rest of my family. Which brings us to today, my 40th birthday. At precisely 12 o'clock midnight, I awoke to what sounded like three soft knocks at the front door. My wife, the lightest sleeper on the planet, didn't even seem to register the intruding noise, while I myself, a usually heavy sleeper, awoke with a startle. I hadn't been sleeping well the days prior to my birthday, anticipating the end of my life, yet unable to believe it. Wearing nothing more than my pajamas, I made my way to the front door. With slight hesitation, I looked through the peephole. On the other side stood a middle-aged man in a suit, with a friendly smile on his face. Mr. Shepard, he greeted me as he shook my hand. Mind if I come in? Speechless, I could do little more than to gesture for him to enter my home. I made up my mind long ago to deny him entrance, yet I felt compelled by his presence. He walked past me and headed straight for the kitchen, seeming to already know the layout of my home, a house I'd inherited from my father. I followed him obediently into the kitchen, and we sat down at the table. He just kept staring at me without speaking a word, his smile never leaving his face. I had a lot of questions, but I couldn't bring myself to ask a single one. We simply sat in silence, looking at each other, like an awkward and equally twisted blind date. You seem surprised to see me, the man finally said after minutes of silence. 
I'm assuming you expected my visit? I nodded my head, still unable to speak. Come on, Mark. You have a perfectly functional tongue. At least your wife seems to think so. Don't be so embarrassed to use it. Why are you here? I eventually asked. His smile vanished, replaced with an expression of utter confusion. Why I'm here? That's the question you want to start with. Not who I am or what I did to your father? I didn't respond and he stared into my eyes, not moving a muscle. Uh, as you wish, he sighed. I'm here to talk, to tell you the answers to each and every question you have ever had. Anything you want to know, I will tell you. No matter how stupid or bizarre of a question it is, I promise you nothing but truth. Did you kill my father? Of course not. That's entirely against the rules. I simply gave him a choice, and like all the men in your family, save for your brilliant granddad, he chose to leave. What choice? Ah, Mr. Shepard or Mark. Do you mind if I just call you Mark? Before I could answer, he just went on talking. That's the beauty of our little meeting. I will tell you the answer, but not until I believe you're ready. He leaned back in his chair and waited for me to keep asking questions, though from the smug look on his face I could tell he knew exactly what I'd ask. Who are you? Come on, Mark. You don't have to ask that. You already know, don't you? I had my theories, and as dumb as I felt they were, it couldn't possibly beat the ridiculousness of the family curse. Are you Satan? I asked nervously. Technically, that's correct, but let's not resort to name-calling. I prefer Lucifer. <laughs> he chuckled. Once again, he fell silent, awaiting my next question, but I couldn't organize the thousands of thoughts flowing through my head. You're really bad at this, you know? Not that it makes a difference. I know exactly what you want to know. You don't even have to speak. So, how about we start with something innocent, hmm? He stared deep into my eyes, digging through my brain, looking for questions I didn't even know I had. Ah, you want to know if your ex-girlfriend still thinks about you. Julia, that's her name, yes. I nodded automatically. She doesn't, and you weren't that special to her. In spite of the pedestal you've put her on, you really should appreciate your wife more. She's far more suited for you. My wife. I'd completely forgotten she still lay upstairs sleeping. As easy as she was to wake up, she'd surely be suspicious of what the hell I was doing awake with a strange man in the middle of the night. Could we maybe go somewhere else? My wife is sleeping and... I said before getting cut off. Mark, don't be ridiculous. Your wife can't hear us. Actually, she's a really light sleeper. He stood up from his chair before screaming, Oh, Hannah, I'm talking to Mark in the kitchen. I'm just about to tell him all the secrets of the universe. And if you come downstairs, I'll tell you too. He then sat back down and listened for any commotion coming from the room. Nothing but silence. I think we're good. By then, most of the adrenaline had settled in my body, and I started to grasp the more advantageous aspect of our conversation. I could ask literally anything, and he'd answer me. But I still needed more proof. He was for real. Just before my father died, he told me something I've never told anyone else. 
I didn't understand it at the time, but when he died the next day, I couldn't stop thinking about it. He paused for a moment, giving me just enough time to doubt him. Be a better man than me, Mark. He said, but the voice I heard was the one of my father. My heart raced at the familiarity, and Lucifer just smiled in return. All doubt had been stripped away from my mind, so I decided to ask something more otherworldly. If you're real, then surely God exists as well, heaven and all that. He looked truly disappointed in my question. Oh, Mark, I'm so sorry. Sorry about what? To answer your question, of course he's real. Him and heaven and the other truly magnificent creations emerging from his holy powers. But you didn't think he actually created you, did you? He... he didn't? I stuttered. No, not at all. You, humanity, you're nothing more than an unfortunate side effect of God's actual creations. You really think something so horrific could be created by an almighty being? Think about it, Mark. You creatures wage war on anyone even slightly different than yourselves. You hoard all your ultimately pointless possessions, letting some rot in poverty while some thrive beyond what's even remotely necessary. You kill for fun. And in the end, you'll destroy the planet, your own home, just because you're all too selfish to take care of each other. That doesn't sound like something God would create, does it? His words sung through me, like an anchor had been attached to my soul and tossed into the deepest part of the ocean. There are good people here too. It's not all that bad, I argued. You're right. There are plenty of good people around here but none of them are truly great. Not a single one of you was able to see the bigger picture. He stood up from his chair and started to pace around, as he lectured me on the futile nature of human beings. In the grand scheme of things, nothing you ever do here matters. In the end, you'll all turn to dust floating around in the empty void you've so affectionately called space. He finished. I felt crushed. I thought of my wife, the fact that we'd both one day die, and whatever feelings we had would be erased as the meat on our bones rotted away in the ground. Our jobs, working to provide a function for society, all of it was a pointless task, only serving to extend the inevitable end of our world. So, what happens when you die? He finished my question for me. Yeah, do we end up in hell? No, you just stop existing. The little fragment of divine power within you, the one you think is worth to be called a soul, is harvested by my workers. We need the fragments to make more desirable beings. He paused, reverting his attention towards my fridge. You'll probably need a few minutes to process. Do you have anything to eat? He helped himself to some cold chicken casserole my wife had cooked as a pre-birthday dinner. So what do you do then since God has left, apparently leaving you behind with the rest of us? He laughed with his mouth full of chicken and a few pieces of meat flying across the room. <laughs> I didn't stay behind. I chose to remain here. Someone has to make sure you guys don't revolt. You guys keep taking things that don't belong. It's only a matter of time before you figure out how to cross over. It's actually way easier than you might think. And while I'd love nothing more than a revolution, I can't leave just anyone in charge to lead it. He dug through the casserole in a matter of seconds, loudly chewing through the meat, almost moaning in pleasure as he did. Oh, your wife truly is a wonderful cook, Mark. 
Remember to thank her for me. What do you want from me anyway? I asked. I want to offer you a choice. Before I could clarify, the walls around us started to dissolve. The ground cracked beneath our feet, and every piece of furniture not stuck to the wall fell through the ground. I stood up in panic and looked at Lucifer with pleading eyes, but we didn't fall with the rest. We simply floated. It wasn't long until the world around us had been erased from existence, and we stood in a grey, empty void. Where are we? I started. Give it a minute, he said calmly. Buildings appeared all around us, tall, modern architectural masterpieces, coloured in bizarre mixtures of silver and blue, all stretching far up into the sky, so uniform, nothing deviating from its neighbouring design. This is Utopia, Lucifer exclaimed, as we suddenly found ourselves on top of one of the buildings. There were no clouds or fog to obscure the view, meaning I could look far into the horizon, seeing that the city truly did stretch out without an end in sight. Utopia? Really? Obviously not. This is my city. I made it some hundred thousand years ago. It's what you people call purgatory, though I prefer to just call it the place in between, he said. You made purgatory? Yep. It's as close as humans will ever get to heaven. It's the only place that exists on the same realm at the very least. I looked around at the street thousands of feet below, seeming so empty, devoid of any people. Where is everyone? In a different section, I keep expanding this place as people flow in. You see, Mark, this is what I offer you. Eternal life in this city, or to be erased by time itself, in a few decades. Quick to be forgotten by the world you once lived in. Why? What do you mean, why? God might have given up on humanity before you were even created, but I still see your potential. Unfortunately, your belief in him still stops most of you from accepting my offer. But you, you are just in the right state of religious mind to be reasonable. You see, I need you all to believe in the glorious afterlife described in your religious books. Just not too much. I could sense the malicious intent behind his offer. If he truly offered eternal life, then surely he wanted something in return. What is this potential you talk about? We're going to take back what's ours, Mark. God sure as hell isn't going to give it to you, but I will. He smiled. Within the next second, I crashed down in my chair back in my kitchen without a warning. We'd return back home. That's the choice I offer you. A chance to live in the Silver City, to have a purpose, all of eternity at the tip of your fingers. But that means you'll have to die, today, and come with me. What about my family? I'm sorry, Mark, but they're not ready. Most of them have been poisoned by their upbringing in religious households. Only a few of you are suitable for the jump. He looked over at the clock on the wall. Time had passed faster than anticipated, and morning had just arrived. Well, our time is up. You have today to decide. At midnight, the deal expires, and you return to your short existence. He started walking out the door, but turned around to give me one final goodbye. Oh, and happy birthday, Mark. Make sure you really enjoy this one. I felt exhausted after Lucifer left. I'd been given the ultimatum of my life. 
I grabbed a cooler full of beer from the fridge at 7 in the morning and sat myself down on the front porch. An hour later, and two beers down, I saw my grandfather strolling down the street waving at me. He could see the look of defeat on my face, and sat himself down by my side. So, how did that go? You did talk to him, right? I just nodded my head in defeat. What did you choose to say? I asked. He glanced at the cooler behind me before answering. You got another one of those for me, kiddo? He asked. I handed him a cold one, waiting for an explanation. I met your grandmother when we were just 18. By then my father and his father before had both left us, so it's safe to say I was aware of the family curse. But though I didn't learn exactly what happened until much later, I promised myself I'd live life to the fullest until my time came. I figured I would just die like all the others, so imagine how relieved I was when I was actually given a choice to stay. He took a large sip of his beer, almost finishing it in a single gulp. But why wouldn't you want to stay if once we died, there's nothing left on the other side? If nothing here matters, then what's the point? Who's to say it doesn't? Just because time here is limited, does that really mean it's not important? Besides, if I have to exist in a place without your grandmother, I'd rather just cease to exist. When we got married, I promised to stay by her side forever, and that's exactly what I intend to do. I looked at my granddad in admiration. 83 years of age, at the end of his lifespan, yet completely carefree, in charge of his own destiny. What about everything else he said? About God, humanity, the place in between? He looked at me for a moment, pondering his next words. You make your own purpose, Mark. Don't you ever forget that. We talked until my wife woke up. She made my favorite breakfast, invited both myself and my granddad inside. We showed a genuine sense of joy, and I envied her, living life in ignorance of the horrible truth. I smiled as we ate together, the first time since my meeting with Lucifer. He gave me until midnight to choose, whether to stay behind and let history wash me away, or to go with him and forever live in the place in between, to serve in a war against God himself. I'll enjoy this day the best I can. After all, it might be my last. Well, folks, gotta say I loved all three of these stories. The suspense in the first tale, the danger and cryptozoology in the second, as well as having Australian cryptids is a great bonus, and lastly, the ultimatum from the devil, I mean, Lucifer himself. Yikes, such great stories, every single one. Now, mates, I've been making changes to my website recently, so if you have some spare time, swing on by by searching stories, fables, ghostly tales in Google, and you can check out the new look. And lastly, a huge thank you to my three authors today. I'll be including all their details in the show notes, so go show them some love, provide them some feedback, and ensure they feel the encouragement. Now my devilish ghouls and screaming spectres, enjoy terrifying those you know over the weekend. And as always... Till next, we meet.